Once again, I would like to reiterate that this podcast is not intended to be an extremely elaborate or detailed account on any of the events that I cover over the course of the podcast. It is only intended to be a crash course on the events that took place. If you would like to find more detail, feel free to research anything I'd talk about yourself. I do encourage it. Enjoy! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, the podcast where Tanner talks about stuff that happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened today. And today, the stuff that we're going to be talking about is the space race. A period of time between 1947 approximately and the early 1970s, where the United States and the Soviet Union competed with one another to be the first nation to tame the great unknown, the final frontier that is outer space. So, we're going to be talking about that today. Now again, I may seem, I may sound a little bit weird. I'm still getting over this sickness that was messing with my voice last week. I promise I don't have coronavirus, but still messing with that, but I feel mostly fine. Just coughing a little bit. So pay no mind to my strange lower than usual voice. So, okay, let's get started. So I often view the space race between the Soviet Union and the United States of America as something like a tennis match. And that's the metaphor that I'm going to be using once we get into the nitty gritty of the story. So we are going to have fun with that. Let's start. Now, the origins of the space race are rooted in the development of ballistic missiles in the waning years of the, of the Weimar Republic during the early 1930s, in, which was uh, the republic that existed in Germany before Nazi Germany. Uh, to get around the harsh restrictions of military growth cited in the Treaty of Versailles, signed at the end of the First World War, which v- put very harsh restrictions on Germany's military growth, so Germany began researching ways to invent technology that could replace long-range artillery on the battlefield, which the Treaty of Versailles expressly prohibited, uh, but said nothing about long-range rockets since rockets were such a new technology at the time. At the onset of World War II, Nazi Germany had recruited hundreds of scientists to further research ballistic missiles. Notably among these was Werner von Braun, who, though he initially worked for the Nazis, he would play an instrumental part in the eventual landing of On the Moon by Apollo 11. So these scientists successfully tested the first high-altitude ballistic missiles in 1942 and 1943. These missiles were codenamed Aggregate 4, or A-4, before being renamed to the... I'm going to try this, but... The the Vergeltungswaffe 2, or more commonly known and more easily said, the V-2 rocket. This rocket has a range of 200 miles and could carry a warhead weighing almost 3 tons whilst traveling 2,500 miles per hour, such a speed making it basically invulnerable to detection as radar detection would be followed by impact in seconds, essentially. As Germany began to realize that they were fighting a losing battle in 1944 and 45 after D-Day, uh, and the Russian invasion of the Eastern Front, the V-2 rockets became a central tactic in their attempt to pretty much bring down the entire the entirety of Western Europe and prolonging their eventual defeat. If they were going to go down, they were going to bring everyone down with them. So between October of 1944 and August of 1945, over 3,000 V-2 rockets were fired into Western Europe by Germany. 
Among these, 1,664 fell in Belgium, most in the fortress city of Antwerp. 1,402 fell in the United Kingdom, mostly in London. 76 fell in France, 19 in the Netherlands, and 11 in Germany. All in the town of Ramagen, 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 as the Allies advanced deeper into the fatherland. So at the end of the war, the Soviet Union and the United States took different approaches to their missile research. As the Soviets claimed Eastern Germany and set up the Eastern Bloc, they moved dozens of scientists into the region to salvage all they could from the ashes of the fallen Nazi Germany, while also forcing many former Nazi scientists into the Soviet task force. The United States, on the other hand, decided to take as many rockets as they could, learn from them, and start from scratch, while also uh, taking dozens, if not hundreds, of Nazi scientists across the Atlantic with them as part of Operation Paperclip, which was a secret program conducted by the Joint Intelligence Operations Agency Agency between 1945 and 1959. I'm a conspiracy nut, and this is one of my favorites. In a move that is still controversial today, instead of facing life in prison for their war crimes, Nazi scientists had the opportunity Option to work for the United States in the research and development sector. As would be expected, most agreed, and among these scientists was our friend Werner von Braun. Scientists in the United States rehashed plans drawn out for the V-2 rocket and created hybrid rockets of their own, starting with the WAC Corporal V-2 rocket in 1949, the first two-stage rocket ever invented. A two-stage rocket is essentially a stage that blasts off into the atmosphere, part of it breaks off, and the other, and basically is useless, and the other half continues on into space. Um, now we have, like, I don't know, like 10 or 15 stage rockets. There's crazy stuff going on with technology. It's awesome. Um, and simultaneously, the Soviet Union had created their first version of the V-2 called the R-1 rocket, first tested in 1948. Though the R-1 was essentially a carbon copy of the early A-4 model, it was manufactured in Soviet plants, which gave the Soviets a leg up and value information on how to develop and build future rockets. So after both these nations had created their respective rockets, both, both based on similar designs, but with unique aspects in each, both had taken notice of the other. After the United States had dropped the atomic bomb on, uh, in 1945 on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan to end the Second World War, the Soviet Union, pretty unnerved at something of such raw power being held in the hands of a single nation on the planet, they set about researching their own forms of the atomic bomb, achieving their first successful test in 1949. And this test did not fly under the radar, with the United States receiving word of it pretty quickly. In my opinion, the first successful nuclear test by the Soviet Union can be pinpointed at, as the beginning of the space race and the beginning of the Cold War, and by extension, our tennis match that I mentioned earlier, because the two superpowers now began scrambling to create a vessel capable of carrying such nuclear weapons into the atmosphere and detonating them on the other side of the globe. So the first rocket designed and built entirely on United States soil was the PGM-11 Redstone rocket, a short-range ballistic missile, a missile that had its first successful launch in 1954. And the United States gave the first serve in this new tennis match with this rocket being launched. So the Russians responded with the R-7 Semyorka rocket in 1957, three years later, the world's first missile capable 
of intercontinental flight, coining the term intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, a term that's still used today, putting the ball back in the, into the United States court. And learning the progress of the Russian missile program, progress was accelerated on the United States ICBM program, producing the Atlas A, also in 1957. The ball returned to the court of the Soviet Union. So at this point, the Cold War was in full swing, stemming from a mutual distrust between the Soviet Union and the United States following the end of World War II, economic sanctions and military buildup began circulating globally, with proxy wars occurring across the world for 40 years. A proxy war generally occurs when one nation descends into civil war, uh, kind of a neutral nation, um, and two larger nations take opposing sides for both uh, factions of the conflict. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union participated directly in or supported conflicts in Korea, that's a pretty well-known one, Kenya, Vietnam, also a very well-known one, Algeria, Sudan, kind of well-known, Afghanistan, very well-known, Congo, Iraq, Yemen, Eritrea, the Dominican Republic, Chad, and a whole lot of others. So these proxy wars contributed to the competitive nature of the Cold War. Who's best? Who is taking the right side? So these heightened tensions created an attitude of paranoia in both countries, leading to countless spy novels and films, propaganda-laced newspapers, and a feeling that nowhere is safe on both fronts. If you've seen the movie Red Dawn, you know what I'm talking about. These fears were exacerbated significantly in the United States with the launch of Sputnik by the Soviet Union in October of 1957, and arguably the first points scored in the space race tennis match. Sputnik was no more than a small ball, less than two feet in diameter and weighing under 200 pounds, with four skinny probes trailing behind it, but it was able to transmit a beeping signal back to Earth consistently. It was the first radio satellite to successfully orbit Earth and transmit a signal back to the surface. And the success of the Soviet Union terrified citizens of the United States, even though it was only capable of sending periodic beeping transmissions back to the surface for all they knew, it was a spy satellite that the United States did not have the capabilities of countering. This kind of paranoia can be seen in the 1999 film October Sky, which I was forced to watch in ninth grade and ended up, ended up really, really enjoying. But with Sputnik now in orbit, the first points of our Cold War tennis match were on the board, and it was now the United States' turn to serve the next volley. And they did. President Eisenhower, panicking under the stress of the fear of the public, ordered the new Project Vanguard to move their launch forward several months, not giving the team enough time to iron out all the kinks in the design of, their, of the rocket for the sake of responding to the Russians. On December 6th, Vanguard TV-3, a sphere-shaped satellite very similar to Sputnik, was nestled inside a rocket as it ignited on the famous launch pad at Cape Canaveral, Florida. The engines fired. Fire and smoke erupted from beneath the rocket as it rose several meters, held steady for a moment, and then settled back to the launch pad, causing the engines to rupture and explode, the entire rocket to disintegrate, and the launch pad to remain severely damaged, all happening in front of a live U.S. television audience. The public wasted no time in calling the satellite Flopnik, 
Staputnik, Kaputnik, and, <laughs> and Dudnik, after its predecessor, the now-fabled Sputnik. Embarrassed, for obvious reasons, Eisenhower elected for the program that Werner von Braun had been heading up to launch the next rocket. Von Braun was way ahead of him, ready for a launch in less than two months later with a rocket known as Juno-1. This launch was a success, and on January 31, 1958, Explorer-1 was dropped into orbit. Making sure to one-up Sputnik, Explorer-1 was not only capable of sending information back to Earth, but was also able to collect data about the radioactive belts circling the planet and send that data back to the planet. One year later, Eisenhower created the National Aeronautics and Space Agency, along with the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center, placing Werner von Braun as its first director. Can you believe that? A former Nazi was the first director of the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center in NASA. A little kind of wild. The president transferred all space-related work to this new agency, putting it pretty inaccessibly out of the hands of the military and into the hands of civilians. The United States, after a brief hiccup, was back in the tennis match in full force, and it was time for the Soviet Union to play their next move. Now it was the Soviets' turn to panic, and they started the Luna program, scraping together six rockets in the next two years with the purposes of taking pictures of the moon and sending them back to Earth from space. The first three rockets exploded on the launch pad. The fourth missed the trajectory to take any pictures of the lunar object. The fifth launch failed entirely. The sixth crashed into the moon. And the seventh, finally, was able to slingshot using the moon's orbit and taking pictures of its far side. The United States responded with the Ranger program, creating the now-famous Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The Ranger program ultimately resulted in seven rockets being built, just like the Soviet Union, also to collect information about the surface of the moon, the first six either failing to launch or malfunctioning in space. It wasn't until Ranger 7 took pictures of the moon before impacting it that NASA had declared the program a success. Now, with the ball back again in the Soviet's court, they decided to up the ante. On April 12, 1961, the Soviet Union launched into orbit a craft known as Vostok 1. Inside, a 27-year-old man named Yuri Gagarin became the first human being to witness outer space firsthand. He was weightless for 108 minutes before piloting the craft manually back into the atmosphere and ejecting at 23,000 feet, parachuting back to the planet. While the United States had been pioneering a similar program to get a man into space, aptly named Man in Space Soonest, they were stunned at the Soviets' progress. One month later, they followed suit with Alan Shepard being the first American man into space. Knowing they had been lagging behind for two consecutive advancements in technology, the United States, now led by John F. Kennedy still licking his wounds from the failed and kind of miserable Bay of Pigs invasion, which I'm sure I will do an episode on later, resolved to deliver a knockout blow to the Soviet Union. In 1961, in a speech delivered as a nationally televised broadcast, JFK called upon the nation to, quote, commit itself to achieving the goal, before the decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. 
close quote. The race was on. In the next decade, the United States would claim an initial victory as John Glenn became the first person to orbit the Earth. The Soviet Union would follow up by setting a record with the Vostok 4 with four consecutive days spent in space, the longest period up to that point that people had been in space, as well as launching the first woman into space with the Vostok 6. The United States shot back with a new record of eight days in space on Gemini 5. On Gemini 8, Neil Armstrong was the first to successfully dock two spacecraft together, and on Gemini 12, Edwin Buzz Aldrin spent five hours working outside the spacecraft, proving that humans could perform productive tasks outside the safety of a craft. Well, in spacesuits, of course. Both Neil and Buzz would be assigned on the first mission to land on the moon. Things seemed to be going well in the race with both nations until the game was brought to a halt under very tragic circumstances. On January 27, 1967, a fire erupted inside the cabin of a spacecraft due for launch one month later as it performed a routine test launch. This fire tragically killed three astronauts, Gus Grimson, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, all American astronauts. The deaths were caused due to safety precautions being overlooked in favor of speed of construction. This was Apollo 1, the first mission in the program headed for the moon. Four months later, the pilot of Soyuz 1, a one-man spacecraft, was killed as his, as his spacecraft's solar panels did not deploy, eliciting an emergency landing in which his parachute failed. The craft exploded upon impact with the planet. Both nations halted their progress for a short time. They had been reckless, and now human lives had been the consequence. In 1968, late 1968, the United States declared that all flaws in their Apollo 1 design had been corrected and proved it with a flawless mission launched on October 11th and lasting 11 days, helmed by the backup crew for the Apollo 1 missions. This was Apollo 2. Practically simultaneously, the Soviet Union fixed the parachute and control issues with the Soyuz 1 and launched Soyuz 2 with the purpose of attempting an in-flight docking procedure. Though the procedure was a failure, the craft returned to Earth with the pilot inside, alive and well. The race was back on. The Soviet Union achieved another first. It docked Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5, transferring a pilot between crafts. This had never been done before. The United States responded by sending Apollo 8 into lunar orbit, not the orbit of the Earth, the orbit of the Moon, the first time it had ever been consistent, making 10 orbits and creating one of the most watched television broadcasts in history. Then, Apollo 9 sent a lunar module designed to land on the Moon into low Earth orbit to test the waters. Apollo 10 did the same bringing the lunar module as close to 50,000 feet above the surface of the moon. NASA decided that it was time for the big one. Across the world, the Soviet Union was fumbling with their success. They were not having a good time. They had designed the N-1 rocket, a super heavy rocket created with the purpose of taking humans to the moon, but not just the moon, beyond, perhaps to Mars. But after two successful launches, a third launch in July of 1969 exploded upon ignition, 
the explosion being so large that it destroyed not only the launch pad, but the entire launch facility. All data about the N1 rocket incinerated with it. It was a disaster of biblical proportions for the Soviet space effort. On July 16, 1969, at exactly 9.32 a.m., a giant rocket known as the Saturn V AS-506 rocket lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center Complex 39 in Florida. The rocket carried Command Module Pilot Michael Collins, Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin, and Commander Neil Armstrong. The team was known as Apollo 11. Three days later, Apollo 11 established lunar orbit. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin transferred to the lunar module, which they had nicknamed Eagle, and the two began their descent onto the surface of the moon. At 600 feet, Neil Armstrong took manual control of the lunar module and guided it to a safe landing spot, touching down at 3.17 p.m. Central Time. Six hours later, they took their time, just to be sure, Neil Armstrong became the first man to set foot on the surface of the moon, obviously saying the words, quote, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Buzz Aldrin followed 20 minutes later. Together, the men spent over two hours on the lunar surface before returning to their lunar module in a live television broadcast watched by one-fifth of the entire world population. The next day, the lunar module launched from the moon, becoming the first craft to ever launch from a celestial object. Apollo 11 splashed into the Pacific Ocean on July 24, 1969. John F. Kennedy had committed the nation to putting a man on the moon and returning him to Earth before January 1, 1970. Apollo 11 had done it, with 161 days to spare. The landing on the moon effectively brought the space race to an end. The Soviet Union spent the next seven years attempting to perfect their N-1 rocket, but after two more failed launches, they canceled the project, deciding instead to focus on orbital space stations. The United States also launched a space laboratory named Skylab in 1973, and officially the space race came to an end in July of 1975, when the Soyuz-19 team and the Apollo Command and Service Module team docked and visited one another's crafts, exchanging gifts and kind words at the request of Richard Nixon and Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev, creating a temporary thaw in the Cold War. NASA had lost a lot of steam with their political support after landing on the moon. There wasn't much to do after that. And why are we pouring all our money into and resources into something we'd already done? With the end of the space race came a loss of public focus on the lunar missions. While NASA launched several missions to the moon after Apollo 11, none achieved the excitement that the first mission had, and NASA discontinued its lunar landings, ending with Apollo 17 in 1972. The Soviet Union never landed a craft on the moon. Eventually, the Cold War would end, and the Americans and Russians would work together on the International Space Station to this day. Now, 70 years after the space race began, knowledge of spaceflight is relatively normal. At any given time, astronauts across from all nationalities are living lives miles and miles and miles and miles above our heads, suspended in orbit across the sky. We can only hope that humanity will never get so deep into another dangerous competition that it puts the lives of dozens of astronauts at risk. 
In one of the last trips to the moon, Apollo 15 left a plaque in the moon dust that survives to this day, named the Fallen Astronaut Memorial, which carries the names of 14 cosmonauts, both from the United States and the USSR. This plaque is a reminder of the perilous game humanity played and the brave men and women who perished trying to tame the final frontier. How's that for a dramatic ending for you? <laughs> All right, thank you for joining me this week on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, where we talked about the space race. This was a fun one. Tune in next week as we're going to be talking about how the fall of a large city in the southern Balkan states in the 15th century eventually led to the colonization of the northern American continent. That is going to be a fascinating one. And honestly, I'm excited to talk to you guys about that. So join me next week as we talk about that. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a very kind, please, review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help us out. It helps us to get more listeners and more people involved with the talking about history and why it's so important. Because it's very important. Thank you again for listening. Tell your friends. Tell your family. If you love it, tell everybody. If you hate it, tell people you hate. I love you guys, and I will see you next week. This is Tanner talking about stuff that happened, signing off. <laughs>